Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, the podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Brian McBrearty, a forensic musicologist. He will describe how he became a musicologist and what a forensic musicologist does. We will also discuss some recent copyright infringement cases involving forensic musicology. So welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm delighted to have you on. I've really enjoyed following you on Twitter and learning a lot about the field of forensic musicology from you. Uh, I was hoping we could start with you telling listeners a little bit about your background. How did you become a forensic musicologist? What's, what's the field like and, and where do other people come from that they, they end up uh, practicing in that field? Uh, well, my own story, um, I suppose, starts at when I first became a music student, which was when I was about three or four. And the reason that I think that's uh, germane is by the time I was six, seven years old, I'd been uh, pretty steeped in music for a number of years. And so while I was listening to music throughout my childhood, I think I was listening to it in a certain kind of way. Um, I, I already understood a good bit of music theory. And I think it, it changes the way that you enjoy music, changes the way you listen to music. And uh, the reason I think that that leads to being a musicologist is it would be descriptive to say that I'm cataloging music as I listen to it. Um, because rather than just hearing how it goes, I'm hearing how it was built. Um, I can hear the chords very easily. Uh, and so my, my recollection of a lot of music that I listened to even when I was very, very young is pretty clear. And uh, it's funny, that's germane even uh, today, right? Ed Sheeran's in court this week defending Thinking Out Loud against Let's Get It On. And two songs that I don't think anybody else knows from my childhood are familiar to me because they were the music that my father liked and the music was playing in my, in my house. And so if I was looking for prior art, which we may get to later, uh, two examples come from when I was still single digits, just things that were, that were on 45s in my house when I was very, very young. Uh, so I was a music student my whole life. And then uh, in college, uh, I went to school for economics, actually, initially. And then I went back to school and got a music degree. And that music degree is in theory and composition. And uh, I'm inclined to, to shoot off to wh who musicologists are and the thing is, musicologists aren't any one particular thing. We're not necessarily all theory background people. Um, in fact, musicology as a academic uh, pursuit is typically not, in my estimation, all that relevant to being a forensic musicologist. Um, musicology, ethnomusicology, is a pretty different field. So um, a lot of time. I'm asked, well, do you have a musicology degree? And no, and I, I don't see really how it, how it hurts me not to have one. Well, that, that's too strong. It would be great to have one. It'd be great to have more information. It'd be great to know more stuff. But uh, for the most part, um, it, it doesn't seem particularly central to what I do. But it could be for somebody else. Um, I think you can come at this from a lot of different uh, backgrounds, disciplines, and even skill sets. But... Um, <laughs> Frankly, I like the skill set that I have. <laughs> I like having a theory background, and uh, and I like having a a very 
long ago begun um, cataloging of, of particularly popular music, which I think most of the time is, is what we're talking about. Uh, your musicologists talk a lot about Bach and Beethoven and, and being able to find prior art examples and going back that far, but most of the time, uh, you know, the lawsuits that we read about in the paper really don't involve that all that much. It's not irrelevant, but it's not especially relevant. Um, and then after school, I, uh, I did a lot of composition work um, for various ends, broadcast for games. I was actually in New York City during the dot-com and uh, uh, the dot-com bust, I suppose, the, the dot-com boom and the bust. Uh, and I found myself working for games companies and, and doing a lot of interactive tech work. And I did a lot of audio in general and a lot of composition. And so that was my composition um, career. And um, at some point, I actually found myself in a copyright case. And I learned that there was such a thing as a music expert, and I needed one. And so I acted as my own. The first time I was uh, even aware of a musicologist's role in, uh, in litigation. And that was fascinating. And frankly, it occurred to me that my lawyers seemed to enjoy the process of, uh, of litigation more than I did as a, as a combatant. I really didn't, didn't like waking up each day with, uh, um, with that hanging over me, but it, it was fun in the abstract. And I set up, uh, musicologize shortly after that. That's the name of, of my, my musicology business. And that's how I got started in this. So maybe you could talk a little bit about exactly what it is that a forensic musicologist does. Right. So, you know, what's sort of the, the baseline for the work that you would do in that field? Uh, when would people come to you? And when they do come to you, sort of how would a musicologist in general approach a particular problem presented by a client? Well, there are really three different kinds of clients would be plaintiffs, would be defendants and increasingly not yet either preventative clients. So a plaintiff a would-be plaintiff, uh, will, they come to me usually because their first call was to a lawyer. And the lawyer's first question was, have the musicologist looked at this yet? It occurs to me that a lot of plaintiffs call uh, unaware of what it costs to sue somebody, probably with a television-based idea that the lawyer is going to do this for a percentage. And, uh, and they're, I, in my experience, they're usually disappointed in that. Um, and the, the lawyer not only doesn't want to do it for, for a percentage, but also doesn't want to do it at all unless it's, unless it's got some teeth. So I'm asked to qualify whether it has teeth. And I can't help but say at this point that usually it does not. Um, in fact, I would characterize it as less than 10%. So if less than 10% have teeth, at all, then within that less than 10%, there's going to be varying degrees of, of plausible teeth. And I think that's interesting because part of the job at that point is really, uh, it's not a therapist, but you are trying to take care of your would-be client at that point in the most human way possible. Uh, it is my experience that plaintiffs are almost invariably sincere, um, characterized by hurt and insult and they are haunted 
And uh, it has occurred to me that it's often said that fear is a stronger motivator than is greed. And fear is more often uh, how I would characterize the would-be plaintiffs. They fear that they've been taken advantage of. And that, that hurts. It would hurt anybody. And so since I'm only finding teeth in less than 10% of these cases, that means 90% of the time, the thing that I want to do, what will make the engagement successful is for me to persuade them that they've not been injured. Um, and I liken it a little bit to a doctor who tells you you're fine, but on the way home you go, he's a quack. I, I, I know that my arm hurts <laughs> and there's something terribly wrong with my arm. And so even as I'm trying to persuade them uh, that they probably were not hurt and that the similarity that they hear, yes, I hear you. Um, and I've looked at this and I, I can explain it away much more readily uh, via coincidence than any wrongdoing. So uh, again, yeah, successful engagement most of the time is for me to have left them with uh, peace. When a defendant or a potential defendant calls, they've been accused of something and they want me to build the case that will discourage the plaintiff. Um, that's usually the, the first, um, the first strategy is to say, we've looked at this and this is a bad idea. Um, of course, my job is not to go in and prove it's a bad idea. My job is to go in and tell them whether it's a bad idea. So, uh, really the role is to enlighten them as to what their exposure is. So uh, I'll, I'll get into my process in a second, but that, that's kind of how I characterize a defendant. Sometimes a defendant will even be somebody that I've written an article about. Musicologize um, has a blog component, uh, the website, and the cases that are high profile, the ones that we all read about, the ones that involve rock stars, the ones that involve famous rock songs, the ones that have been, um, I will, if I'm not involved, I will... I will opine. In fact, if someone wanted to try to figure out what I've been involved in, they can go and he was awfully silent on that. And it, one reason is I could be involved or another reason could be that I, that I know the people involved. Um, if, if, if I have not written about something and it seems um, um, conspicuous that I've been silent and someone could probably map that out. Chat GPT has probably got a profile on me at this point. Uh, and then I was going to say the last part and the part that I actually enjoy doing the most is uh, preventative. Um, I think it goes back to what I'd said earlier. Be being a participant was not as much fun as, as just being an, an onlooker or a strategist or a, or a light bulb. And preventative, well, you're really, you're avoiding conflict, which just feels better. And, uh, and it's, it's a different kind of value proposition. So preventative, uh, the clients are, the most typical one would be an advertising agency. An advertising agency is going to put out a campaign and there's going to be music set to the picture and the reach of that campaign is going to be large. And that means the, the, the listeners population is going to be massive and the risk associated with both them stepping on some other song or someone thinking even wrongly that they have uh, is a function of the reach of the campaign. So the, the more successful the campaign is in effect, uh, the greater their risk. And so um, and so I do an analysis that analyzes not merely, or not merely their actual, um, 
likeness to some other work, but also hypothesizes as, as to what a, um, a wrong-minded observation might be because it's all part of their risk. And then uh, either say you have no risk and write up a document that says why you have no risk, or say, I see these risks, and then I will work directly with the composer, actually moving notes around, um, saying you can change this, you can change that, you can change that. And often you're really just talking about um, wrong-minded observations that you think are plausible. And that's the work I like doing the most. I'm really interested to hear more about the experience of working with potential plaintiffs. Um, to, the, to the extent you can kind of give a sense of where they're coming from. When you see people coming to you or coming to lawyers who come to you saying, we think this song may have infringed on our song, what are they usually reacting to? Like, are there typical features that cause potential plaintiffs to think that they've been wronged? And what about those kinds of allegations leads to ones that small percentage where you think that they might really have teeth? Like, how do you differentiate between the potentially viable infringement claims and the ones that shouldn't, shouldn't be pursued? First, they vary widely. Um, I would love to come up with a, a typical scenario, but no typical scenario is really occurring to me. Only random examples that I can't say look like the fat part of the bell curve. Oh, they, they largely fall into this, this zone. They don't, they come, uh, they come from all kinds of suspicions. Uh, it is a cliche, but it is real that people call and say, I heard my song playing in the grocery store. And then I went home and realized that I'd been ripped off. Um, they will hear some snippet, uh, a would-be plaintiff. Now, I'm, since my would-be plaintiffs are 90% mistaken in my estimation, that's going to be who I'm characterizing here for the most part. They hear a snippet. That snippet might be a lyric. That snippet might be a fragment of a melody. It could be an uh, overall feel. Um, sometimes it's thematic. They will be under the impression that because the theme is the same as a song that they wrote, that therefore it, they were copied. Um, so it's really kind of all over the map where their suspicion comes from. And then it's interesting that once they have that kernel of a suspicion, then they begin to connect the dots. And so they actually come to me with a laundry list. Well, there was this and there was this and there was this. And uh, I do tell them usually that I would like them to write down all their thoughts, but then I don't look at their thoughts until after I've looked at the music. So I do my analysis and then, then I look at all the things that I know are going through their minds. And that's in part because of what I'd said before, I'm going to have a conversation nine times out of 10. That is, let me tell you that I heard you and that I listened to the thing that you wanted me to, to listen to. And I've considered your position and here's why I think you can put this down. So I'll tell you a little bit about the approach. Um, let's say it's a, let's say it's a would-be plaintiff. There's going to be a song A and it's going to be a song B. And song B in this scenario is a famous song. And song A is the song that, that the plaintiff walked in the door with and said song B infringes upon. Um, 
the first thing you do is spend a lot of time listening to both. And you're listening for hallmarks of originality, which is to say that in any given song, the song is going along and it's using conventions. And then the, uh, the magic moments in a song are where it deviates from convention. Those are the moments of, of high creativity and are the things that, that make composition fun. So I will typically listen to song B first. And I will say, well, these are the moments in song B that most characterize song B. These are the moments in B that are not the same as everything that ever came before B. Uh, and if I find that in song A, then that will stand out. That will be conspicuous as opposed to ignorable. And so that's much of what you're filtering for, trying to identify those spots. And then uh, in terms of tactically, uh, I sit in software and I, I mark those spots and I might actually transcribe them, which is to say I write out the music and then I'll have something concrete that I can speak to. And then I'll listen to song A and I'll see if it has any of those such moments. And then I'll do the process in reverse because at that point I'm looking at what my client wants me to look at and I'll actually try to imagine uh, if I don't readily see uh, how song A was related to song B, what my client is likely keyed on, and, uh, and then I'll, I'll begin to build an explanation for why that is or is not probative of copying, let's say. In the event that you do find similarity, the next step is to uh, evaluate whether that similarity is substantial or not. That's largely a function of originality, um, and that's largely a function of prior art and musical conventions and building blocks and things that you can filter out. And so after doing the, the listening and doing the transcribing and looking at what the notes are, then you can go back into history and, and see how prior art might relate or inform uh, on the matter of, of originality. And originality is part of your, your logic for both copying and for uh, what would eventually be unlawful appropriation. So the process you describe, is that consistent among all musicologists or did different musicologists have different approaches in your experience to answering or evaluating songs and answering these kinds of questions? And you know, are there sort of best practices among musicologists or is there disagreement about how to approach these kinds of questions? That's a really interesting question. So um, I think it's interesting that I don't know a lot of forensic musicologists. Um, and I don't think the rest of us know each other. I, I don't think I'm, I'm an outlier in that regard. Uh, there is an American Musicological Society. The membership is primarily ethnomusicologists, the, the more traditional uh, use of the word musicology. Forensic musicology is, uh, is, is sort of separate. So to my knowledge, there is no society of forensic musicologists. We know each other primarily from our work. Uh, I have a blog and I know that my fellow forensic musicologists are reading my blog. Um, and I read their work and I read their filings and I look at their, uh, their analyses. 
And so the conventions are kind of built from our familiarity with, with what we all do. And it's interesting because when you're actually in, uh, when you're actually in a litigation, you hear one musicologist say, well, that's not the traditionally accepted way to do that. That's not the uh, broadly accepted definition of that term uh, and tactics like that, that really come off in, in my view as just, as just tactics. Um, we all do basically what I described. You listen, uh, you have some tech that you, that you use, but I think most of us rely primarily on our, on our uh, broad knowledge of music, first and foremost. And then uh, when I don't feel like I have uh, everything I, I need to, to form an opinion, perhaps uh, music's in a style that is not in my wheelhouse, not every style is my wheelhouse, or sometimes a piece of music can, uh, can be characterized by the way it was built. And by that, I mean music technology. Now, one, uh, one of the strengths that I have is, is having written a lot of music and using a lot of tech. Um, sometimes I can see how something was built and sometimes the way something was built informed the composition. Sometimes people write because the tools enable them to write in a certain way. And that can be, that can be forensically, uh, valuable. And the reason I mentioned that is sometimes I can't see how it was built and I might go to somebody else, uh, who knows a certain type of music production technology better than I. So I might go to somebody else if they know a style of music better. I might go if, if I have a question about, hey, how is this done? Um, but most of the time, I think most musicologists rely upon their, uh, their internal database. And then there's some tech uh, that you can turn to. And, if, and ultimately, there's, there's just Spotify and, and, and Apple Music, and I'm on there a lot. Well, so Brian, there, there's been a bunch of recent high profile copyright cases sort of putting forensic musicology in, in the news. I wonder if you could kind of briefly walk us through those two, those two cases, one of which was decided, one of which is currently in, in the works, and sort of how you as a forensic musicologist would analyze the copyright infringement allegations or the copying allegations that that were made in in those cases well let's go back to blurred lines first since it came before uh blurred lines keeps coming up in the past couple of weeks as it well obviously it's the the two cases both have have marvin gay in common and blurred lines is probably up until this one i would say the the biggest case in the in the last um, 10 or 15 years certainly um, blurred lines is most interesting because not just the numbers involved and both the songs are very famous, but because by most accounts, blurred lines and got to give it up were not, um, they weren't similar in the ways that a musicologist would typically have found two works to be substantially similar. Um, there are elements in music that are more protectable than others. And the blue chips, 
as I like to call them, uh, of forensic musicology are melody and lyrics. And the melody and the lyrics to Blurred Lines and Got to Give It Up were, I would say, nothing alike. And then secondarily, Harmony was also pretty much nothing alike. And yet the two songs sounded a lot alike. And so the the job for a musicologist then would have been to figure out what elements of it sounding alike are most um, a function of their their underlying compositions, which is where copyright really is supposed to be most applicable. And when the verdict came out, uh, it was confusing to musicians and musicologists alike. And that's why it casts such a big shadow. Forever since, and certainly in the first couple of years following, every engagement that I had was somehow related to it. Um, attorneys in particular wanted this current concern framed within the context of Blurred Lines. Well, where is this in terms of even plausibility? How far afield are we compared to, say, Blurred Lines? It is my position that Blurred Lines could not possibly be reasonably said to have infringed on Got to Give It Up. And similarly, it is my position that Thinking Out Loud cannot reasonably be said to infringe on Let's Get It On. But the two don't really have that much to do with each other in my estimation, musicologically. In case of Blurred Lines, I think we looked at elements that were not especially protectable by copyright. Although I should point out that I think it's misunderstood that the Marvin Gaye side of that case didn't really argue uh, genre, feel, vibe. I don't know that they ever said the word groove. I don't know that they didn't, but I don't imagine that they did. Uh, it just seemed that way uh, in, in the rearview mirror because all of us, whether you're a, a lay listener or an expert, said, what else could you have pointed to? So the verdict has to have had to do with those things. Even the dissent uh, from, the, from the appeal said that this is achieved something that had never been achieved before. We've, we've protected uh, a groove or a feel. I don't want to quote, I can't remember exactly what the words were, but um, we've allowed the protection of something we haven't previously allowed. And we may have, but not in any way that I find to be particularly clear. What seems clearer to me is that the jury was overwhelmed and persuaded that, um, that one was actually the blueprint for the other. And when I look at the musicology from Blurred Lines, that seemed to be the case that it was making. A is related to B in the following ways, the constellation of, of eight things that uh, their expert was able to point to, um, all of which you could, you could debate the, the validity of on, a, on a one by one. But it seems to me that the totality of that, the jury found persuasive. And now here we are. The Thinking Out Loud, Let's Get It On case 
actually does have some similarity. The thinking out loud, let's get it on case involves the similarity of a chord progression and the rhythm with which that chord progression uh, is played. And we're all fond of saying that you can't copyright a chord progression. And whether you can or can't, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure you shouldn't be able to copyright a fairly ordinary four chord chord progression played in a fairly ordinary rhythm. And so that in a nutshell is my basis for thinking that this case is, is ridiculous. Um, but I can quickly play for you what we're talking about. I think, which is to say that one song goes, uh, played poorly and the other one goes, and I played them intentionally to sound the same because they sort of do, but in fact, the second chord is quite different from one and the other. Uh, that's interesting because what this case is actually down to is whether, not whether either of those are original chord progressions, but whether the selection and arrangement of A, that chord progression, B, the rhythm with which it's played, and perhaps C, either the key signature which with, with which they're played or some other melodic elements. Um, it's interesting that, that this is kind of in flux even as we're, as we're talking about this. But what the case really comes down to is whether what I just played is a protectable expression or not, however you look at it, whether you look at it as two different things, a chord progression and the rhythm with which it's being played, or since it's hard to realize a chord progression without a rhythm in which it's played, uh, personally, I, I, I think this is all rather silly. Um, but that's the essence of, of this new case. And uh, in the event that a jury finds that Ed Sheeran borrowed even that much, um, it, it's going to, that'll be all I hear about for the next two years, that's for sure. To what extent do you think, as a musicologist, in, in your assessment of what you've seen doing this work over the years, the reaction of non-musicologists to the similarity of two songs is influenced by how famous or popular the, the original song is, as, as opposed to ones where the original song might not be so well-known. I think this goes to the problem of juries. My job as a musicologist is not to decide whether something infringes. My job is to illuminate the question of whether something was copied and then secondarily whether what was copied was copied uh, enough and of original, uh, of, of material that's original to what I was calling song B before. And then it's, it, it's someone else's job to decide whether, whether that's uh, right or wrong. But to answer the question about the layperson perception, I think the trickiest aspect of this, and certainly I think this is the scariest aspect for Ed Sheeran right now, is non-musicians poorly calculate probability 
and motive and originality. And so they're ill-prepared to make the decision that they're charged with making. It's really unfair and inappropriate that we ask them to do it. The faith that we have in juries is, in my estimation, based on something completely pretend. It might ultimately be more just, more wise, but from my perspective, it leads to a diseconomy right now for, for the plaintiff and the defendant. They are very much trying to calculate what a layperson will rightly or wrongly conclude. It is my experience that the layperson and even 90% of, of the would-be plaintiffs who are my clients ascribe far too much motive to the, the writer of song B. Writer of song B stole my song. Why would writer of song B have done that? They did not need your song most of the time. That is the miscalculation. Ed Sheeran did not need to know Let's Get It On to have written Thinking Out Loud. That Thinking Out Loud, uh, rather, that Let's Get It On is famous is not part of that calculus. He may very well have known Let's Get It On, and yet Let's Get It On does not need to have entered his mind to any degree for him to have written Thinking Out Loud. And so the similarity between those two songs is not probative of copying by that logic. The layperson miscalculates that, does not correctly understand how easy it is for Ed Sheeran to have written that chord progression and how easily he and his co-writer would have arrived at that chord progression play to that rhythm. It does not require let's get it on. That is a basic misperception. How easy these building blocks, as musicologists like to call them, come to the creator at the time of creation. They are like vocabulary. That's actually not, not a terrible analogy. They are your basic vocabulary. You just start talking to some extent. And then your brilliant moments are when you say something that's really clever and those become the moments that make the song either good or bad or great or interesting or whatever. But much of the time, you're just talking. Thank you.